Who am I? Why am I here? Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. I shall not seek and I will not accept the nomination of my party for another term as your president. Tear down this wall. And the wall just got 10 feet taller. We're going to California and Texas and New York. We're going to South Dakota and Oregon and Washington and Michigan. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Break the glass. It's election shock therapy. I'm Chris Moore, and joining me in this emergency podcast session are... Andy Bramson. And Matt Kukum. And guys, I've, uh, I've, I've broken the glass. I've broken my sabbatical. I've broken all <laughs> kinds of vows uh, to bring this here together because it's not every day. It's not every year. It's not every decade that we get a leaked draft opinion from the Supreme Court. And on top of it, an opinion on what is potentially one of the most notable publicly aware uh, court rulings in all of American uh, judicial history, right? Uh, the court has heard a case that challenges uh, the standing of Roe v. Wade and uh, Politico. The uh, uh, political journalism website broke a story a couple, two days ago where uh, a draft opinion drafted by Justice Alito, who was assigned the opinion by Justice Clarence Thomas from a, from a, from a majority from a, um, to uh, draft an opinion which... It's about 98 pages long and which in, in very broad strokes overturns Roe v. Wade, calls it an egregious miscarriage of justice um, and dismisses both it um, and Casey versus Planned Parenthood. And basically, and I'm going to let Matt and, and Andy talk a little bit about what this, what this really means in depth, but basically gets rid of a federal guarantee of the right to an abortion. Um, and returns that question to individual states to decide for themselves. Now, that's the major thing. This is huge. This is uh, the Supreme Court does not leak draft opinions. The Supreme Court is one of the most airtight uh, parts of our government. So a leak at all is incredibly striking. And that's one of the reasons we wanted to talk about this. But of course, we want to also talk about the social and political implications yep. of what overturning Roe might mean. One more quick note, just to set the stage for this. Um, about an hour or so after uh, the political story, there was a secondary leak where an inside source inside the Supreme Court, again, we don't know who's not, I'm a source, um, in, uh, reported to CNN that just Chief Justice Roberts, who's often seen as the swing vote, um, well, was seen as a swing vote prior to a, a, um, a conservative supermajority, uh, was not interested in overturning Roe. And so that, so that kind of, that needs to be noted here. We're going to get into all of this, but before we do, let's actually just set the groundwork. Um, guys, it's been a while since I've lectured. It's been a while since I've had a class. Uh, Dr. Kukum, take us to class. Tell us how the Supreme Court opinion writing <laughs> process usually works. Okay, so I'm going to back up um, to the oral arguments very briefly. Um, so it was during the oral arguments um, in the Dobbs case, um, which is considering the Mississippi law that bans abortions after 15 weeks. Um, the court heard this case had oral arguments back in November um, for this. Both sides uh, presented their views and the line of questioning from the different justices strongly suggested that five, possibly six justices were interested in upholding the Mississippi law 
and potentially striking down Roe v. Wade and Planned Parenthood v. Casey, the Roe-Casey sort of abortion framework. Um, and, you know, smart people um, on both sides were sort of preparing for a, um, a ruling to be issued in June by the Supreme Court that um, would at probably strike, probably uphold the Mississippi law and um, perhaps even strike down Roe. So the substance of Alito's um, opinion is very much in line with that with that rationale. The substance, the tone is pretty spicy um, and heated um, and isn't sort of designed to sort of persuade people on the fence. Uh, but the substance of his arguments is very standard fare. And so a lot of this discussion we're having now is really discussion we probably would have had in June. Okay, so that's the oral arguments. After the oral arguments, um, and this goes for every case, there's what's called the conference. The conference is a meeting of the nine justices. They all sit, there's a specific room, they sit at a table, the chief justice sits at the head of the table, and they all discuss their views. And they basically do an initial sort of alignment of where each justice stands on the particular legal questions. And they use this to determine how, basically how they're going to write the opinions in the case. Um, so an opinion is simply um, a, a document that provides the legal rationale for the court's decision. Um, so the majority um, of the justices write the majority opinion. Um, they decide who writes the majority opinion according to whether or not the chief justice is in the majority. If the chief justice is in the majority, the chief justice gets to decide um, who writes the majority opinion. If the chief justice is not in the majority, the most senior um, justice gets to decide. So it's pretty clear that Roberts was probably not on board with the initial conference, or at least that's what the CNN um, leak suggests. And so in that case, it would be Clarence Thomas who makes the decision about in the majority because he's because the he's senior, the more senior justice. He's the most senior ju justice yeah. in that majority makes a decision about who is going to write. Um, and seemed likely that he designated Samuel Lido. There's various um, theories floating about around why Thomas is going to didn't write it himself and assigned it to Lido, possibly because Thomas might write his own concurring opinion that wants to go further. That's another discussion for another day. Um, at any rate, Alito, you know, writes the opinion um, for the court. Um, and basically what happens is there's an initial sort of draft um, that's created by the person who's writing the opinion, the majority opinion of the court. Um, and also other justices at this time are writing dissenting and concurring opinions. And these opinions, these papers, these documents are all being sort of traded around. They're having ongoing discussions. Oftentimes there's ongoing advocacy by both sides to individual justices. Um, this happens all the time in a lot of major cases. There's all these deliberations that, that go on. And as the justices trade opinions, um, oftentimes they're responding to each other's opinions in their opinions. So let's just say, you know, the majority shares their opinion with, you know, um, one of the people writing a dissent, then the dissent tweaks their dissent to respond to the majority opinion, sends it back to the majority, and the majority is like, okay, and like responds to a particular part of the dissent in like a, a super long, like page long footnotes. This happens all mm -hmm. the time. And so there's all these deliberations. And then finally, at the end of it, you know, the court issues the batch of opinions um, and it's ruling um, at some point, usually during the spring, big cases often get dumped at the end of the Supreme Court term in June. Um, this process is very deliberative. It's done behind closed doors. Um, 
And um, it's not something that we're sort of privy to. Um, and that's sort of by design. We want the court justices, Supreme Court justices, to be able to make these decisions um, and be able to exchange this information with each other. And the clerks, the law clerks for the justices are involved in the development of these these memos as well. And sort of it's it's assumed that, um, and it has been the norm for many decades, really all of the Supreme Court's history, um, that these deliberations um, and that that these that these um, these briefs, um, these opinions are confidential um, until they are ultimately put into their final form and published uh, by the court. Um, so what we see is an early draft from early during this process. Um, and it is quite possible that, you know, setting aside the leak, it is quite possible there could be people sort of shifting votes. Um, it's quite possible that opin- opinions are oftentimes rewritten um, um, for a variety of different reasons. Um, so we're kind of getting sort of a peek into the sort of the early, the early part of this process. So is it fair to ask, I'm sing- speaking as someone here who's not a who follows the Supreme Court, but it's not an expert in the Supreme Court, that the there could have been a, a significant amount of shifting from this draft to a final ruling, such that although the decision to uphold um, to uphold the Mississippi law might have been you know secured, the extent to which Roe is overturned in light of that Mississippi law um, might really change. It, it, it's possible. I mean, it's pretty clear coming out of the oral arguments. You had a solid five, maybe six for upholding Mississippi law. A little bit more of a question about overturning Roe. A lot of people said it's definitely on the table. It's a, it's definitely a, a strong possibility, not a given. Um, so yeah, it is possible. You could see, you know, someone sort of waffling. One of the justices, not Alito, um, probably more of a Kavanaugh, um, maybe a Barrett or, or Gorsuch, sort of uh, wobbly on overturning Roe altogether, um, mm-hmm. even if they would uphold the uphold the um, Mississippi law, for example. Right. Okay. Um, so, so I guess the two theories of being floated right now for um, why this thing got leaked is um, sort of it could have been leaked by a conservative, probably a clerk, a conservative clerk that would be designed to sort of leak this to sort of um, try to lock down all five justices into this opinion that was written by Alito to overturn Roe altogether. Um, The other possibility, which I think is slightly more likely, but we don't know because we don't know who the leaker is. The other possibility is that this is a leak um, designed to sort of put a classic sort of pressure campaign, um, exert pressure and sort of sabotage the whole process to get some of these justices to bail off of, not lock it down, but to get them to bail off of the Alito opinion um, in order to sort of save Roe. Um, mm-hmm. It could go either way. We don't know which way it's going to go. Um, I have doubts of where we'll ever know who the leaker is, um, at least in the short term. So. Well, Robert launched an investigation, right, about that? Yeah, he is. Speaking of leakers, uh, yeah, Justice John Roberts is mad (laughs) about um, this leak. Uh, Justice John Roberts, more than anybody else in the court, has um, really emphasized the normative um, position of the court as an impartial arbiter, as an apolitical arbiter, even as the court has hewed in a much more conservative direction with recent conservative appointments. uh, Roberts has tried very hard um, to keep the court out of partisan politics. And so this leak has got to be just the last straw for him. He's promised an investigation. Um, Mitch McConnell, um, and by the way, this has become primarily the Republican elected official talking point. So Republicans in general, at least as I've seen, have not really been sort of 
trumpeting the overturning of Roe very much. They've mostly been decrying this leak as a as a breach of procedure. Um, Andy, is what is what does this norm this, this this sort of this leak this violation of the conclave aspect of the Supreme Court, the confidentiality of their deliberations? What does this really mean? Is it, uh, how, how would you contextualize this norm violation? Well, it feels like it's, I mean, we've already seen the court becoming more politicized, but it feels like it makes the court more like the rest of politics, right? Where we're we're having to see the sausage making, right? Instead of just mm-hmm. sort of seeing the, the kind of polished finished product of, you know, here's how all the judges have thought very carefully about it. They've edited, they've, they've kind of thought through exactly how they want to make the argument, whether they're in the majority, whether they're dissenting, whether they're in the majority, but writing their own concurring opinion, right? We get this kind of finely honed version of where all nine of them are at. Um, and, you know, and it, and it really does, I mean, give us the kind of that, that thoughtful version of how do we reflect on the law? And now instead we get this version that, I mean, maybe it's close to a final draft, maybe not. We don't know. Well, I guess we'll find out whenever they release it, you know, how you can go back and compare this to the final draft, but, but it's, it's one part of the process, right? We're only hearing that majority opinion. We don't know actually, you know, where, what Roberts is saying and what the, the three more liberal judges are saying. Right. Um, and so that's, you know, it's, it's disturbing at that level. Um, and it's disturbing because, frankly, I mean, like this is supposed to be this is supposed to be kept confidential. The, the justices have these discussions. And, you know, we often think about it as the liberal wing and the conservative wing. But the reality is they're all they're all serious judges who do have real conversations and they don't always align in kind of the ideologically predictable ways that we might expect. Right. In fact, most of the court's decisions are actually not all that ideological. I mean, this is one of those cases where it will be. Right. But but they're not they're not always. And so I think, you know having this kind of release undermines, you know, what's left of that kind of, you know, sense of the court as this more impartial above politics kind of thing. Um, it makes it feel more like it's just playing by those same sets of rules. So it's, it's a, it's very disappointing. Now I can already think of the federalist papers that are going to undermine the argument I'm about to make, but in the interest of making a devil's advocate argument, wouldn't introducing a little more democracy to the court be a good thing? Uh, these justices are appointed for lifetime terms. Uh, Matt, Matt's already gesticulating. I know he hates this. So, um, and I don't love it, but I'm going to say it anyway. Um, but like the, the, uh, these guys have these, these people, excuse me, have lifetime appointments, um, having them be, um, uh, more, um, uh, um, more exposed to public pressure. Isn't that a bad thing? Isn't that a good thing for democracy? <laughs> no, it's the, the bad one. <laughs> okay. All right. So okay, walk through yeah. that then. I mean, yeah. we, we, we don't have to spend a lot of time on this, but I but let's yeah. but let's let's at least establish why we might want to keep some parts of our otherwise democratic system insulated from the vicissitudes of public opinion. Yeah, um, I mean, we could we go all the way back to people like Aristotle, um, or more recently in Montesquieu, saying that yeah, a, a healthy government is a government that is mixed, that has democratic elements, but also has um, aristocratic elements um, or elements that are. Um, sort of taken out of the sort of immediate sort of um, the, that are insulated from sort of the flashpoints of, of politics, right? And and the Supreme Court was specifically de- designed to be that sort of institution. Its members are not elected. They're appointed by the president, confirmed by the president. They sit for life. And the whole point is you want the group of people who have to do the work of interpreting the law, which is actually very complicated, requires a lot of expertise and as much objectivity as a human can muster. We want those people um, to be insulated from, um, from politics. Uh, we want 
in order to protect minority rights in a democracy. We want to have a sort of a non-majoritarian feature of a constitutional republic, which can actually protect those rights. This can certainly create create other problems, um, but a Supreme Court um, that is able to do its job, um, that is able to sort of do the hard work of thinking about the law and to do that, um, to do that in a way where there aren't, let me back up. I mean, the Supreme Court does actually listen to what the public has to say, right? Um, Mm -hmm. People, I mean, you can file a brief, uh, a friend of the court brief uh, in any case. Um, The Supreme Court routinely hears arguments from a wide swath of of American society. Everyone is represented in some ways in these arguments before the court. Um, There is a diversity of opinions um, amongst the justices on a variety of different issues. Um, So the court is representative in some sense of of the whole American public, Uh, but its job is not primarily to be representative. Its job is to try to interpret the law faithfully. And that is hard to do. Um, And that is best done in the context of, of, you know, sort of the deliberative process that the court already has. I could sound off more on this, but that's, that's no, I think you, you, I, I, I teed you up. You, you yeah. got it. Um, <laughs> okay. So Matt, one more um, sort of uh, question from POS 100 here. Um, what, if the, if this decision, not necessarily the opinion, but if the decision to overturn Roe broadly stands in the final ruling, what, what effect does that actually have on the American legal system? Okay. Um, I'll get to that. I do want to put a giant exclamation point on what Andy said. Um, The leak is, it is super problematic. I don't think people on both sides really understand how problematic it is. Um, Leaks are the tool of hardball sort of politics, right? They're designed to put pressure on decision makers. Leaks almost always undermine internal decision making and create distrust. That's the last thing that we need um, in Washington, D.C. right now. And it's certainly not something we need in an institution like the Supreme Court, which actually has more respect from the American people than Congress or the president. You look at a public opinion polling just of the three different branches of government, the Supreme Court is the most trusted right now. And I think part of the reason for that is um, that they're the only branch where people aren't yelling and screaming at each other, right? There are there's a gravitas are, and a dignity. Yeah, there is a gravitas yeah. and a dignity. And, you know, the justices actually like each other, it turns out. Um, we have a, a the Supreme Court. People don't know this. The vast majority of decisions are nine zero um, or eight one or seven two decisions. Right. Yep. Um, the court is actually functioning pretty well on the yep. whole. Um, and so to see a leak like this happen is it undermines deliberations. It creates sort of a toxic environment within the court, especially between um, the relationships with clerks. This also mm-hmm. moves the Overton window and creates a permission structure for further leaks. Um, yep. And that is a huge problem. Yeah. The next leak just got a lot easier. It did. Um, And Roberts wants to crack down, obviously. Right. Yeah. Oh, and I think the best thing he could do is to, and other people have said this is dismiss all the clerks right now to send a signal that this is not going to be tolerated. Um, Just say, Hey, we don't know who it is. We're dismissing all the clerks because it's probably clerk. You need to police your own. Um, You need to hold each other accountable. We're not going to stand for this. I think that's the only way you you nip this in the bud. And I think they need to do it do it post haste. Matt, I promised a hot take and I, this is very speculative. So okay. we'll take no more than 30 seconds on this. Any chance the leaker is Alito himself. No. He's got five votes for That's this cool. really expansive ruling on overturning Roe v. Wade. Somebody's getting wishy-washy. It's not Alito. It's not Thomas. Maybe it's Barrett. Maybe it's Kavanaugh. 
and to, to keep them locked in, he, he leaks his own opinion draft to, to prevent them from, from jumping ship. Um, yeah, you're not the only one to float that. Um, yeah, it's possible. Um, I would be really surprised. I would be shocked. Every one of the justices is very committed to, I mean, some more than others, but all of them are committed to the relationships on the court and to sort of the integrity and institution of the court itself, from Sotomayor yeah. all the way to Alito. Yeah. I would be really surprised if he did that. Um it's also kind of a, it's kind of a, like a, like a JV move, like a move. Like <laughs> it really is because like, you don't know. I mean, these sorts of leaks, um, like you really don't know what the after effects are going to be. And if you're a politico, you're trying to be smart about like what the leak's going to do. It's very much the move that some, some like hotshot clerk who doesn't really know much about politics because they've never really been in politics. All they've been is in law school and clerking. It's very much a move that a hotshot clerk who is frustrated with, you know, institutions, right. Um, and wants to burn it all down. I mean, that's, that's kind of what you have in Harvard and Yale right now, the law schools. Um, it's very much the sort of thing you'd see a clerk do. Um, yeah. So anyway, I think it's a clerk could be a conservative one could be a liberal one. I'd be shocked if it was Leo. It's possible. Right. Fair I'd enough. be pretty shocked if it was any of the nine. Justices. Yeah, I, yeah. I just don't think, I think they're in all enough of institutionalists that they would not like it's, they, they play long games. Right. And and that this is a really kind of short term. I hope so. The stakes yeah. of this case are particularly high and the pressure is particularly intense. I mean, yeah, but they, I... Are, they are, but they also, and this gets to our next question that Matt's going to talk about, like they are and they aren't, right? I mean, like they, in some ways they are, and in some ways overturning row actually isn't as, as impactful as people think, just because of all yep. the limits we've already allowed and what doesn't change in a lot of states. So maybe that leads Matt into that question. Yeah, that that's right. And I, I think, um, I mean, certainly this is significant, um, but I, I would admonish everyone on both sides to take a step back and chill. Um, breathe, breathe, people. Breathe, breathe. Um, well, anyway, so so basically, of course, this kicks it back to sort of pre, pre-row era. The states ultimately get to decide what they do with abortion. Now, a lot of states, you know, have either currently, um, you know, codified abortion restrictions or implemented these trigger laws um, that would sort of end end abortion immediately whenever the Supreme Court issues this ruling. Other states have actually upheld the right to abortion sort of affirmatively um, in in their state laws or constitutions. Some states really haven't done much of anything. Um, Mm -hmm. They haven't passed really much in the way of any laws. Minnesota is an example of that. Um, So basically what this would do is it would actually mean that there's not much of a change in abortion policy in most states. Um, You would have some states that would move to ban. Those states are already states that have a number of different restrictions on abortion already and which have very, very, very low abortion rates. So basically, in most states, you would not see a big shift on the ground in the number of abortions taking place. You would get some fights in some states that um, are sort of in the middle. Um, and those could be consequential for those states. Um, but there's some interesting work done by some think tanks that basically suggest that if Roe v. Wade is overturned, Casey is thrown out, and we go back to sort of the status quo ante. Basically, the biggest drop in abortions that we could expect would be about 13% tops, probably less. Um, significant, but not an overwhelming difference. There's a lot of different reasons for this. One of the reasons is that in the United States, abortion levels have been dropping consistently 
over the past 30 years, uh, actually 40 years. So basically after Roe um, in 1973, we saw a spike in the number of abortions per 1,000 women. Basically, this peaked around 1980 um, and has been dropping ever since. And that rate of decline has actually been steady. Regardless of who is president, whether it's Republican or Democrat, it has been a steady decline. There's a lot of demographic and sort of social and scientific reasons for that, which we could go into. Um, but I think it's helpful to sort of keep in mind sort of the context of, <laughs> of you know, we have declining abortion rates. That would continue regardless mm-hmm. of this decision in the summer. You will probably see a bit more of a decline than you would have otherwise because some states will put an outright ban on abortion. Other states will allow abortion. Um, mm-hmm. those states won't be surprising and people will go to the states to get abortions. So on the whole, yeah. you're actually not going to see a, a, a massive shift. So. I want to jump off the last thing you said, because it bridges into our final question. And that is, um, you're, I think you're absolutely correct. The, the overall base rate number of abortions in the United States is unlikely to change dramatically as a result. If every state that a, sort of has a Republican legislature and every state that's democratic legislature follows suit and either permits abortion or, or, or bans it. But that doesn't mean that the effect is, is proportionate. And so uh, relatively affluent people, relatively affluent women who are seeking abortions, will, let's, let's say, let, let's put that person in the middle of Oklahoma, um, can certainly catch a flight to New York or California where abortion is not going anywhere, um, or even Canada, um, and, and receive a, a, a legal abortion in one of those states. Um, what will be particularly hard is for a particularly poor person in Oklahoma to uh, to to get an abortion if that's something that they're seeking. Um, I actually do think what this is going to affect is not so much the um, uh, some of the more um, horror story versions of of back alley abortions, which I which I don't think will go away. Um, people are desperate. People will try desperate things. But I think this was going to happen more often is um, a, an increase in mail order medications, which skirt the edges of abortion. And I, so I think you'll see companies try to skirt laws and there'll be prosecutions and investigations of companies that are mailing RU46 or other kinds of, of morning after or early term abortion medications to people in states that otherwise prohibit abortion. And I think I think that's likely to see an increase. Yeah. And you're seeing some of that already, but um, even despite the availability of more abortion, I mean, of, of chemical abortions, even though that's much easier, um, even for people in states without abortions, I mean, or with very restricted abortions, you've still seen a decline in abortions. So um, yep. including chemical abortions. So yep. I just think there's, there's been a lot of social demographic and cultural shifts, but, um, but I totally take your point. Yep. Um, so, with that in mind, we have um, this will assuredly be a major talking point now in the uh, in the fall congressional elections. We've yeah. already started to see uh, Chuck Schumer already basically framed the the fall uh, elections around um, the defense of women's right to choose on the Democratic side. Andy or Matt, either one, we all, I think we all need to weigh in on this. Um, how do you anticipate this affecting what was shaping up to be a brutal congressional electional season for the Democrats? It probably helps them. I mean, that's my initial reaction is I think the, the struggle with midterm elections is always getting the, the party energized. If you're the party in power, right? Usually the party that's out of power is more energized, more enthused about coming out to the polls, 
Um, and, and it's harder for the party in power to do, to kind of match the energy. Um, my inclination is to say this doesn't necessarily get the Republicans more energized. Um, if anything, it, it maybe lessens the importance because like, well, we got what we wanted there. I mean, so you can make a case like it makes it important because then you, you want to adjust laws in particular places. Right. But, but I don't know, like, I don't think it really ups their energy much above what it is right now. I could imagine it being very energizing in certain parts of the democratic party. So I guess on balance, I would just say it'll either have relatively little effect or it probably helps the Democrats. That's my initial inclination. Yeah. Matt? Yeah. Uh, short version, it won't matter. Um, longer oh. version, I think Andy's right. Um, I mean, I think, I mean, it's hard to say how this is going to break. It couldn't give Democrats a shot in the arm um, to try to get them. I mean, because I mean, the case is now like, oh, we need especially state, um, state level officials to sort of shore up um, abortion protections. But, you know, the states where that's going to be the strongest are the states that already would have protections for abortion and already do. Right. Mm-hmm. Republicans could, you know, conversely, Republicans could get a shot in the arm like, hey, now we get to have a fight in the states to try to remove abortions. But again, states that are going to ban abortions are already the states that would have bans or restrictions on abortion. So everyone's kind of sorted themselves. I think it will matter some in particular states that are on the fence. Minnesota is an interesting case on that mm-hmm. with the legislature. On the whole, I don't think it's going to matter. And I think if it does help Republic- Democrats a little bit, it's going to get utterly swamped by the midterm effect of inflation. Yeah. It's just not going to matter. Part of it, too, is abortion has been declining in salience for both Democrats and Republicans over the past 20 years. It is just not the issue it once was. Even amongst white evangelicals, it is not as important. Immigration and racial issues are actually more important in that group than abortion is. That's a change over the past 15 years. So abortion is less salient. The people for whom abortion is salient are all the hyperpartisans, the really strong Democrats, the really strong Republicans who are all locked into their views already. who are already fighting amongst themselves about various things, including abortion. So on the whole, I don't think this moves the needle very much. And I think the needle is about to swing very much against the Democrats this fall for completely unrelated reasons. So I don't think think it's going to register very much. I'm I'm sort of in between the two of you. I think, Matt, you're right that there are broader structural features of this election that line up um, to potentially produce a Republican wave. Um, both in the House and the Senate. I think that, however, it might be a little bit more of a mobilizing effect than, than, than you suggest. I think you're right. Um, the people who are likely to be highly mobilized by, um, by this decision were probably the people who are already going to go to the polls and vote. But there was an enthusiasm gap um, between highly committed Republicans and highly committed Democrats. And I think it's possible that this decision could erase that enthusiasm gap. Um, for Just really quickly, um, there was some interesting reporting from, I, I think it was Pew, but I, I, didn't, I didn't jot down the source, sorry. There's a pretty substantial chunk of the highly committed Republican base that reports that they would be very happy if Roe was overturned. No surprise there, right? Not a pro-life people on the Republican side. And there's a lot of people on the Democratic side who said they'd be very angry if Roe was overturned. No surprise, a lot of pro-choice people on the Democratic side. But here's what's interesting. The group of people on the Democratic side that would be very angry is much larger than the group of people on the Republican side that would be very happy. And we know that anger mobilizes people to vote and anger mobilizes people to go to the polls, much more so than joy does. (laughs) <laughs> um, and so I think you, I think you'll see that group yep. of already very committed Democrats be much more enthusiastic about campaigning, about donating, about drawing their friends to the polls. And so I actually do think 
right. Will it, will it change? Will it, will it erase the likely shellacking Democrats are going to receive in November? Nah, but it might save the Senate. Okay. I mean, it might be close. It might. Yeah, it might. Right. I, I think that's right. Like it might reduce the shellacking, right? Like they're still probably going to lose the house. Um, but maybe they don't lose it by as much, right? Maybe the Senate, maybe it makes a difference in some close races. Um, it, it, I mean, part of it, this is the, I guess, unknown is like how well do Democratic leaders use this to mobilize? I mean, because a lot of this is how it gets shaped. And so are they- There are, are some nuanced ways to do this and some ham-fisted ways to do yeah, this. Yeah, are they successful in really persuading people that there's this larger narrative of, you know, the Republicans are against these interests of women, Right. Um, and and they have to they have to sell that story, right? If they if they sit, sit, situate it in that kind of story and they make people angry successfully, right? Then then yeah, I think it, it might actually make a difference. I'm I'm actually kind of inclined more toward the it probably washes out. Like this hits big in June, people are really angry in June and July. That's a long time from you know November. By November, what they're really upset about is their pocketbooks, and that doesn't help the parking power, right? So. Yeah. I'm actually kind of more inclined toward that, but if it helps somebody, I think it helps the Democrats if they're successful in kind of getting that narrative to stick and then holding it through November. Right? Yeah. I mean, maybe, I mean, I mean, sometimes when issues sort of break into the public, they can become more salient, right? Yep. So yep. there's some interesting literature on that. However, you know, those that can also sort of revert to the mean, right? That salience or revert to what it was before the exogenous event happened. So like, I don't know, like, I think, the people who are going to get mobilized by this are the people whose views were locked in and whose turnout was all but assured anyway. So <laughs> it's just, it's just not as important. I mean, so if you look at, this isn't a, the best example in the world, but if you look at the Virginia um, gubernatorial election back in the fall, um, Terry McAuliffe versus Glenn Youngkin, um, basically McAuliffe spent millions of dollars basically attacking Youngkin's views on abortion, saying when Roe gets overturned, Youngkin's going to, you know, implement all of these, you know, anti-abortion policies and bans. And and like it didn't do anything for him. It just didn't it didn't go anywhere. And obviously now that, you know, if, if Roe does get overturned, that makes it more real to people. And so that would make probably something of a difference. But it's just. It's just it, it doesn't crack the top five issues for a lot of people. Um, and, and really, this is because partly because um, a lot and there's also some really interesting public opinion research done by some sociologists out of Notre Dame. Actually, it's for you, Andy, um, that actually sort of did some deep dives into what people really think about abortion. It turns out most people don't have opinions on abortion that fall neatly into the pro-life or the pro-choice camps. Yep. Most people, yep. most people in the United States think abortions should be available most people are highly uncomfortable with abortion. Most people want restrictions on abortion. Yep. Um, and for them, for most people, abortion is not really a political issue. It's, it's a personal issue. Um, and they, they don't like the way either party necessarily talks about it. So I think that's so a good, is, yeah, go ahead, so, Matt. Anyway, um, I'm just kind of rambling now. I just, I no. think it makes it hard to determine which way things go, but also suggests okay. um, this is not sort of a, a, this is not going to be a sweeping sort of mobilizing issue um, for where it really matters. I think it could impact on the margins and yeah, maybe that's enough to save a few key Senate races and maybe that's where it matters. I think this matters more in particular States um, who gets control of state legislatures or governorships um, and how that might affect these key States and their abortion regimes. So I think Minnesota is going to be very interesting in that regard. I think so too. Yeah, although I think Minnesota will, I mean, I, I think we'll end up being pretty strongly pro-choice because we, we already have a Minnesota Supreme Court ruling from the 90s on the books like that yeah. 
you know, upholds the right. I mean, the current court is, of course, almost all appointed by either Mark Dayton or Tim Walls. Yeah. So, um, it, it would, there would have to be some significant shifts before we would, we would shift as a state, most likely. But I think just to hold the point or to build on the point you're saying, Matt, like, I think one of the things that makes this harder for the Democrats to use it successfully to really change their outcomes is, you know, for so such a big part of the Democratic Party's kind of voting bloc is are the minority communities. The minority communities are really complicated on this issue. They are not they are not in line with the hard left, right? I mean, like when you look at African Americans, you look at Hispanics, and you you look at their views on abortions. I mean, it's not that they never get them, but they're not like some sort of like this is like a really important issue, and we're really gung ho about this. You know, they they really do see this as like it's complicated. We want, you know, we're, we're not that enthused about it, even though we may support like it is a woman's choice to do that, right? But it's not like like the thing that's going to get them out there and get them like you know storming the barricades, right? Um, it's just it's you know they at least they feel somewhat conflicted, right? So I just don't know like if you if you focus the whole election on that, you know, is that really going to be helpful? Maybe it helps to a certain that, like white liberals, but maybe it doesn't help in other other corners. That's what I was referring to, Andy, as, in terms of nuance, right? Um, this is an election that's going to be broadly about the economy, broadly about inflation, um, and if you lose that thread for this purpose. I think that's to the detriment of your campaign in either direction. Um, but there's a nuanced way to, to weave this in, I think. Yeah. Um, that might be effective. Yep. Yeah. Well, one of the, the things, the, we, just, go ahead. Oh, uh, sorry. I was just going to say the other thing I'll keep in mind too is uh, sort of a cautionary um, word for those on the pro-life side and how this could affect their their uh, interests in this. I mean, so after Roe, I mean, Roe v. Wade basically created the pro-life movement. Um, and it's fascinating that, um, that and, and, and that's one of the reasons why you did see sort of a decline in abortions, not only because there was restrictions put in place, but a real sort of push by the pro-life movement to sort of change the culture open up crisis pregnancy centers, find ways to sort of decrease abortion through other means. Um, I do wonder if what we'll see is now that abortion has become of decreasing salience for white evangelicals who are sort of the traditional sort of pro-life base has become, it's just Pew Research has done some stuff on this. Now that Roe v. Wade, you know, could potentially be axed, you know, I wonder if you could get this mindset, hey, we wanted this issue and they sort of move on because now there are other more important issues to white evangelicals, um, mm-hmm. you know, school education, um, you know, curriculum stuff, um, racial issues, for example. And so um, I, and I wonder if what we'll see after this ruling is sort of a diminished sort of enthusiasm for some of these pro-life issues because we won and we've moved on to other things. But on the other hand, a bit more enthusiasm amongst some Democrats, like, hey, we need to sort of shore up abortion rights in particular states. Um, And so um, I do wonder if that could lead to, um, if not an uptick in abortions, then a diminished, um, that that sort of rate of decline of abortions could flatten out perhaps, um, partly because the pro-life sort of movement sort of loses steam and Democrats have a response to the court ruling it's the sort of flip side of the coin to what you saw with the Roe v. Wade ruling and then sort of the pro-life response to it. So um, I I think it'll be really interesting to see how this plays out next five years. Well, if you're wondering 
at some point in this podcast, if we we're all going to weigh in on our hot takes on uh, the morality of Roe v. Wade or the or broader <laughs> ethics of abortion, I'm sorry, you've reached into this podcast. Um, that's not, that wasn't the point of this. That wasn't the purpose. Hopefully you have understood a better sense of how the judicial uh, Supreme Court judicial process works, the opinion writing process. You understand why this uh, leak was such a norm violation and maybe a little bit of how this might play a role in the upcoming electoral politics of the United States. There are lots of sociological implications. There are lots of uh, moral implications that we encourage you to think seriously about, um, but we're not going to turn this into a seven-hour podcast to help you do that right now. Uh, thanks for listening to us. You can always reach out to us with questions at electionshocktherapy at gmail.com. Uh, folks, my sabbatical is almost over, and I'm going to whip the whip and make these guys get back to a regular schedule next fall. Uh, but look for us to uh, show up at least once or twice between now and the fall, probably with a Supreme Court blood edition. We'll bring our friend Mitch uh, Crum in to talk about all the Supreme Court rulings, not just this one, but all the others as well. There's a lot of really interesting things in the docket. So thanks for listening to us and until we're back in your feed next time. Go Royals. Royals.